I'm Bert Cohen. We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not a drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Well, believe it or not, there was a time when evangelicals were pro-choice, and the NRA, the National Rifle Association, was pro-gun control. Yes, you heard that right. But taking the opposite side has turned out to be very useful in terms of a power grab by the far right. And now with the prospect of yet another hardcore right winger on the U.S. Supreme Court, the rest of us are highly likely to see our own personal freedoms affected and not affected in a positive manner. The other side sees itself fighting a hard battle to protect the sacred and quite traditional freedoms of the Second Amendment, their interpretation of the unfettered right to own any and all guns by any and all people. And the other base of their legalistic struggle is the basic right to life itself. It seems that forever these groups have been fighting these moralistic and immutable fights, anti-gun control and anti-abortion. But it hasn't always been the case. To them, these issues are the essence of what freedom has always meant in America. You talk about freedom to gun owners, and they talk about owning a gun. That's it. But this picture is inaccurate. It hasn't always been that way. In fact, as our guest today writes, conservative hypocrisy on abortion and guns is part of a much larger far-right power grab built on dangerous lies. Hypocrisy? But everybody sees their rigid consistency. Have the NRA and evangelicals not had these positions at their very base forever? Well, it may be hard to believe. But our guest Paul Rosenberg tells the real story in his article, When Evangelicals Were Pro-Choice and the NRA Was Pro-Gun Control, A History of Hypocrisy. Paul Rosenberg is a California-based contributor at Salon.com, a columnist at Al Jazeera English, and senior editor at Random Lengths News. Paul Rosenberg, thanks so much for being with us today on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thank you. Well, even Glad to be here. Evangelicals and gun rights advocates have long been seen as part of the American identity. But as the old Porgy and Bess song says, it ain't necessarily so. If you were to tell people that the fanatical gun-worshipping NRA used to be pro-gun control and white Christian evangelicals used to be pro-choice, No doubt one would be on the receiving end of rather odd looks of disbelief. But sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. It is true. And as with so much of what passes for history, the real truth of necessity 
has to be erased. For persuasion to be effective, the audience has to believe what is being presented. And again, as is the case so often, the truth just may set you free, and that is dangerous to established powers for sure. Well, as right-wingers are eager to point out, Democrats were the party of racism and segregation. Yes, indeed, we were in the 19th century. Nowadays, I believe it can be said that all racists are Republican. History doesn't always present clear turning points, but as you specify, Paul, the foundations began to crack in 1968. What happened in 1968 relative to these historic shifts in the NRA and evangelicals? Well, I would say specifically what happened in 68 was uh, the election campaign uh, of Richard Nixon and the Southern strategy. Uh, it didn't shift uh, ideas uh, uh, within those organized groups uh, right away, but, uh, you know, he... he struck the chords that would move things in those directions. And uh, just the year before, uh, the NRA had been supportive of uh, a gun control law in California that was passed in, in response to the Black Panthers carrying guns in patrolling Oakland. And so it was very clear that, you know, Law and order uh, under Reagan uh, was uh, used against uh, a threat of black activism, and that was echoed as well in uh, Nixon's national campaign in 68. And within a very short period of time, uh, you know, that, that was picked up uh, by activists within the NRA who did not... Uh, controlled the organization. That didn't happen until a coup took place in 1977. But the impetus in that direction got a huge boost uh, during uh, Nixon's Law and Order campaign. And at the same time, uh, uh, you know, his, his moves towards uh, segregation, I mean, the first two judges he unsuccessfully nominated for the Supreme Court were outspoken segregationists, which is why they were defeated so, uh, you know, so resoundingly. Uh, so he sent those messages, and it was the segregationist views uh, within the evangelical community, uh, within the leadership of what became the religious right, that was their real motivating factor. So that's what set you know, what set things going in motion, even though uh, the results really didn't start showing up until, uh, you know, the end of that decade, the 1977 with the takeover of the NRA by a coup, and around 1980, when Falwell's Moral Majority was founded, and Falwell uh, wrote a book in which he identified abortion as murder, devoted the whole chapter to it, and started uh, direct mail flooding people's uh, mailboxes with the propaganda that it was a biblical imperative that uh, abortion was murder, which in fact had never been the view of uh, evangelical uh, community as a whole. And, and evangelical scholars in particular were completely blindsided by 
this propaganda campaign, which uh, just didn't accord with how they had always read scripture. So interesting, yeah, and politics does get involved, and I've heard it said uh, recently with a lot of, uh, you know, there have been a lot of uh, mass shootings that if you want uh, gun control to become effective, just uh, issue uh, guns to uh, Black Panthers and Black activists. There'd be uh, a lot of calls on the right for gun control at that point. Uh, well, that's <laughs> certainly what happened in uh, 1967. It happened very, very quickly. It didn't take any time at all to pass. And, um, you know, Ronald yeah. Reagan was very happy to sign it. Unbelievable. The Christian right is today seen as primarily motivated by being anti-abortion, as well as being anti-gay. Uh, but this is relatively new, you say. What was the raison d'etre before 1968, the Christian right? Wasn't this movement really started when Franklin Roosevelt was president? What animated them before abortion? Well, uh, before abortion, uh, there were... You know, it, it was it did not exist in the form that it does now. I mean, there there were certainly strands, and there were you know there were uh, anti communism was a very big part of it. Uh, um, you know that uh, uh, opposition to evolution uh, was another part of it. Uh, but um, you know those different strands were largely uh, overshadowed by just appealing that politics was a dirty realm and that they should, you know, focus more instead on uh, saving souls. And that was the dominant ethos in the evangelical community. So there were politically active evangelicals, but they did not have the kind of massive infrastructure that they came to have after 1980, because they were, uh, you know, they 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 had this deep uh, skepticism of being involved with politics uh, that um, had been around, I guess, you know, really since the Scopes trial, and they they felt publicly uh, humiliated and alienated so deeply uh, that they just didn't want to be involved in politics, and even you know Jerry Falwell. Uh, you know, in his earlier incarnation, had expressed that view on a number of occasions that, you know, that politics was really not something that people should be involved in. It was precisely, uh, you know, Carter's, uh, uh, you know, He's the a- Carter administration going ahead and uh, and prosecuting cases against segregated uh, evangelical uh, institutions like, like Bob Jones University uh, that finally uh, tipped the balance for most of them. Mm. So uh, that's what you had. You you had you know you had conservative political traditions amongst them, but uh, you know the balance was to stay out of politics, and that was sort of the tipping point. That's what that tipped them over into saying uh, we can't stay out of this fight. We've got to get in, and it had nothing to do with abortion. And economics certainly played a role in opposition to Franklin Roosevelt. I find it fascinating how ever since FDR in the 30s and 40s, uh, the uh, conservatives, the people with significant wealth who are selfish and don't believe in the common good, 
have been trying desperately to tear down all the New Deal programs. And it does mm-hmm. seem that uh, a lot of the impetus, though it wasn't obvious at the time, really came from, from this period that uh, they were against the uh, the New Deal. Right. Yeah, they're definitely, um, the evangelicals are definitely a part of that. But as I said, they had, you know, their tendency was not to organize politically. And so right. uh, you did get, uh, I, I would, you know, I would point to um, an, an example is, uh, you know, the way that uh, Billy Graham uh, organized. He, he, he uh, stayed out of, uh, the substance of politics primarily, mostly just tried to hobnob uh, with uh, with with po- with politicians, and you know, and you know, uh, not get into the substance. When he did, and he backed Richard Nixon and defended him against uh, uh, you know Nixon's mounting problems, uh, he got burned. I mean, he got burned very badly, and what what really upset him was not so much what Nixon was doing, but his foul language. Yeah. That's what really embarrassed him. Oh, so just to give a, a sense of the kind of superficiality involved. But, of course, that was very much keyed around the idea that we were fighting communism, godless communism. And right. so it was, you know, the, the support for capitalists and capitalism Framed in religious terms, played an important cultural role, but but the organization wasn't there. You know, Graham organized these huge uh, camp, you know, evangelical campaigns to turn out huge crowds, but they were not mobilized as political entities. They weren't going out and knocking on doors for candidates. That's the change that happened. Uh, with the moral majority in 1980. So you're definitely right that that those strands were always there, uh-huh. but they weren't really weaponized in the way that they became until uh, around 1980. Yeah, it's amazing how odd things get weaponized. So much language gets weaponized. We've heard a lot about that recently. If you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Live, Bert Cohen here. Our guest today is Paul Rosenberg, who has written on Salon, about, uh, well, when evangelicals were pro-choice and the NRA was pro-gun control. Hard to believe, but uh, it's uh, it was to their political advantage to make those big changes. And there are always people quoting the Bible. And I understand that, uh, you know, the, any so many positions can be backed up by saying, ah, oh, there's this reference in the Bible or that reference in the Bible. And there's been, of, of course, you know, the, the uh, hard right says that uh, enthusiastically, for sure, no question, life begins at conception. I understand that there have been other parts of the Bible that have been uh, cited, uh, that were cited by some of these uh, uh, evangelicals that uh, saying that life begins at birth. What what do you know about that? I, I you're probably not a biblical scholar, I'm sure. Well, no, no, I'm not. But I do know that you know in in in, in Genesis, uh, you know, God breathes life into Adam. You know, he forms him of clay and breathes life into him. Right. And this was common. One of the common uh, touchstones for uh, for Protestant theology for a long time. They just you know that. 
breath was life, and uh-huh. life was spirit, uh-huh. and you know that that you actually weren't uh, a human being until you took your first breath, because that's how the first human being came to be. Yeah, good point. And that's you know a very powerful imagery, and makes a lot of sense. Just you know, in in terms of a simple direct story and. You know, it comes very early in the Bible. I mean, yes. when the human race first makes its appearance. Yeah. So it was pretty, you know, pretty broadly understood and comprehended. But the real argument that was, that was uh, I cited in um, my, my story uh, was about the fact that um, in, 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 you know, the, the earliest uh, uh, Jewish law, uh, manslaughter it was not considered murder if a pregnant woman uh, uh, miscarried as a result of mm-hmm. uh, an attack. And that that just was oh. not murder. And mm-hmm. murder was a capital offense. And the offense for causing a woman to miscarry like that was not murder. So from that, uh, you know, evangelical scholars. Uh, were pretty clear that uh, it was, you know, not a human being at that point. There was some debate uh, throughout all of uh, of uh, Christian history over, you know, when exactly uh, uh, you might say that a, a human being had been formed. And this was even within Catholicism. Catholics didn't really come to believe. Uh, that it began, life began at conception until relatively recently, but that had been Catholic doctrine for quite some time before Roe, so they were firmly in that camp. But, uh, you know, you go back to Augustine even, and Augustine doesn't say that life begins at, at uh, conception. You know, he, he's, um, I believe his position was uh, that uh, before quickening, when, when there was no uh, formed human body right. uh, that certainly couldn't have been regarded as human. So the the disputes, the, the, the theological disputes have been all over the map over time, but certainly amongst uh, evangelicals at the time of uh, Roe v. Wade, uh, it was widely seen as a good thing. And uh, this can be seen by the fact that uh, the the anti-abortion uh, factions within uh, the evangelical community were lamenting the fact that they had so little support within their amongst their co-religionists. That only changed... It started to change in 1979 uh, when uh, Francis Schaeffer and C. Everett Koop uh, uh, were involved in uh, a... Uh, uh, a, a book, I guess it was both a book and, and a documentary that they put together, uh, Whatever Happened to the Human Race. And it was basically uh, targeting what they called secular humanism. And uh, it was sort of sensationalist, uh, to put it mildly, and it started things going. But really, the next year, it was uh, Jerry Falwell's book that I mentioned before, where he devotes a whole chapter to attacking abortion, and then the mass marketing. The fact that he's got, you know, the moral majority was set up as 
a direct mail organization when that was the hot new medium. That was, you know, like right. the Internet before the Internet or right. Facebook before Facebook, you know. And when hmm. you had millions of people getting this in their mailbox on a weekly basis, telling them that this is what the Bible taught, that's what really changed opinion on a mass basis. And it completely circumvented all of the then-existing establishment of evangelical scholars. And there, you know, there really was um, a fairly large community of, uh, you know, people from seminaries and, you know, people who studied the Bible quite, you know, diligently and in depth and, and you know, wrote articles about it and, you know, held seminars and, you know, and they were just completely cut out of the process at, by that uh, propaganda campaign. Absolutely amazing. History is so fascinating. And uh, there's so much more to talk about here about the, the flip largely w- within the uh, evangelical community for being pro-choice to fervently anti-choice. Your article in Salon mentioned that in 1971, way back, the Southern Baptist Convention passed a resolution on abortion rights. What did that say about when and why abortion should be legal? And this is the Southern Baptist Convention. Well, um, I mean, again, this is an example of uh, the the balanced view. And, I mean, the, the woman's life was more important. Uh, the woman was a living human being. Uh, now, you know, some there were difference. There could be some differences. You could see it as uh, the the fetus as a potential human life, and that would be important, of course. But when you balance that against, you know, an actual live living person, uh, you know, they were quite clear that that you know it was a good thing that uh, you know that uh, a woman should be able to have an abortion. And so, I mean, it you know it was you know it was pretty much a reflection of where the overall uh, consensus of the country is today. They were not outside the mainstream of American thought at the time. Uh, they were not dist- you know, culturally distinct. They were uh, you know, more acute in terms of thinking about it through the lens of the Bible, but the conclusions that they drew were not that different from um, anyone else in the culture as a whole, and they were quite distinct from the Catholic Church at the time, which was adamantly insisting that it, you know, human life began at conception. Right. Yeah, there have been, and they were certainly, you know, they certainly supported uh, birth control. Which, by the way, I mean, Griswold, the the, the decision right. before Roe that laid the way for it. You know, was a decision that was only was like a decade old at the time. So, to be so firmly uh, in support of birth control just showed that they were, you know, quite in tune with what was happening uh, in the culture at large. Yeah, they have to be in tune for sure. And there certainly have been uh, differences within the Christian faith between the uh, the evangelicals. And uh, Catholics. And today, Paul Weyrich, I'm not sure if I pronounced that right, uh, is regarded as one of the more successful founding fathers of right-wing social conservatism. I wonder if you could tell us about his initial experience in trying to entice evangelicals into the abortion debate. 
How did, as you say, they suddenly get religion about politics and get political about their religion? Well, uh, he's been, you know, there was a sort of a famous passage with his uh, that gets quoted in a lot of books, and he said, you know, what galvanized the Christian community was not abortion, school prayer, or the ERA, you know, the Equal Rights Amendment. He called himself, he said, I'm a living witness to that. Because I was trying to get these people interested in those issues, and I utterly failed. Huh. So what... <laughs> now, that, that's, that's pretty convincing. When someone tells you that they failed at something, they're, you know, they're confessing their own powerlessness, their yeah. own failure. Uh, you can pretty much count that they're telling the truth about that. Yeah. He goes on to say what changed their minds was Jimmy Carter's intervention against the Christian schools trying to deny them tax-exempt status uh-huh. on the basis of so-called de facto segregation. He doesn't even buy what was going on. You know, he calls it so-called de facto segregation. Uh-huh. Uh, they actually, you know, admitted that it was de facto segregation because as that litigation went on, uh, uh, they actually, uh, you know, Bob Jones University actually, you know, softened uh, its position. It had originally been segregated, uh, it later integrated, but then forbid uh, interracial dating. Uh, you know, so there was a softening going on at the same time that they pretended that there was nothing going on. So there was multiple levels of lies and deception going on, but Warwick's own words here make it very clear that it was not about abortion, it was about race. Oh, my goodness. And we find that really uh, today just lurking behind the uh, calls for freedom of religion. There are those who say that there's a war on Christianity and they want to be able to discriminate based on their religious beliefs. And right. This sounds awfully familiar, I have to say. Yes, it, it's it's almost identical. And the thing is, they lost badly in the Supreme Court at that time. At that time. Uh, and now yeah. they've succeeded. You know, the most recent decision was 5-4, that it's fine to discriminate on the basis of religious belief. Uh, if you're, and not just uh, if you're a Christian school, but, you know, if, you, if you're a Christian baker, you can discriminate. That's what religious freedom meant. Well, if the Supreme Court had taken that view regarding race uh, back in the day, uh, we you know we we have a very different we live in a very different culture uh, country today because the civil rights movement effectively would have you know been been stalled almost you know at its at its uh, you know point of inception in terms of changing our political culture. I don't think. Uh, you would, you know, you would certainly never have had a, a President Obama in a world where uh, it was still commonplace for uh, private organizations to discriminate and completely legal. I mean, uh, but that's what they would have gotten if they had had a similar ruling in, at, on that issue at that time. We would still have legal segregation throughout the vast majority of the country. That is so, it's it's disturbing, it's shocking, and it's sickening, quite frankly. And, you know, the, the fact is so clear that the interest in segregation, in keeping, you know, racial discrimination alive, it's 
it's just astounding. I mean, I was I so naive. They don't even understand what racism is. They think, well, I'm not a racist because I don't, you know, wear a Ku Klux Klan outfit and I don't burn a cross. They, I think some of them really believe that, but that's so much of what's really behind what's going on here. Keep white Christian men in power. Uh, and the, they use the abortion uh, debate as well as the uh, the gun debate. And it didn't mm-hmm. used to be like that. As you say, that I hadn't thought about the, the Jimmy Carter thing and how, uh, you know, saying that, no, you can't discriminate. You can't have segregation. Uh, and it goes on and on. And they're so tenacious, obviously. I mean, the tenacity is impressive, I have to say. And I think it's interesting that uh, I, I found being in the New Hampshire State Senate on the gun debate, uh, the, the gun owners uh, were all focused on one issue and one issue alone, whereas the majority of people who favored, you know, some degree of uh, gun safety laws were scattered, were on so many different issues that the other side is focused on it, and guess who wins? And we'll get to the to the NRA right now, how they made a switch. They They began as a gun owner's sportsman club that used to be in favor of gun control what happened to the nra in 1977 i wonder if you could compare their identity pre-1977 to today well uh, originally uh they were you know they were about i would say they were about gun safety as much as anything else i mean uh, sure they actually were involved in the drafting of the legislation in 1934 of the first federal uh, gun laws that were mm. passed uh, you know, in response to the violence of, uh, of uh, gangs during the Depression, and uh, machine guns especially. And they were, you know, they were very, very disturbed by this. I mean, as, as understandably, I mean, oh, you know, yeah. machine guns were, you know, wielded by gangsters, and uh, the people who were in the NRA were people who uh, took a lot of pride and care in their use of guns, and they were, you know, mostly, uh, you know, mostly as I say, sportsmen. Although, you know, it was originally founded by. Uh, 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 members of the Union uh, Army who had been disturbed by the fact that uh, there was so much more of a gun culture in the South, and they felt like if uh, if Northerners had uh, you know hunted as much and and practiced as much with guns, the Civil War would have ended much more quickly. And so they wanted to promote, uh, you know, they wanted to promote skill at that time, but. You know, by, you know, two generations later, uh, when uh, it was clear that if there was ever another war like that, uh, that it was not going to be settled so much by uh, individual marksmen, there was going to be, you know, tanks and things like that. Hmm. So there was not likely to be another war like that. What they had morphed into was much more of a, you know, a hunter and marksman's kind of club, but, you know, bound together by the idea of, you know, skill, care, uh, I would say a professional attitude, not necessarily a mm. class professionalism, but, you know, a, you know, sort of a, a pride in 
skill and care and diligence. And so, you know, they were, you know, they were, you know, I would say, uh, many of them just horrified by uh, the thuggishness of gangsters and, and quite willing to uh, call for gun control uh, in that kind of a context. And they sort of continued in that vein. Uh, um, in uh, you know, when, when Johnson uh, called for gun control after uh, the assassination of uh, President Kennedy, uh, they testified in support of uh, it. And uh, it didn't, you know, it wasn't passed until 1968 after Robert Kennedy and right. uh, Martin Luther King had been killed. Uh, and they didn't go in for everything. They did not support a national registry, which was part of what Johnson wanted to see. But they supported virtually everything else, and they were very happy at the way that it included most of what they were in favor of, and they excluded the National Registry, which is the one thing they opposed. Yeah. And so they were very happy. They were participants in the process, uh, and uh, you know, they, that's who they were. What happened after that was that um, there began to be an influx of white libertarian-minded uh, people, uh, and eventually, what happened was they sort of uh, the NRA set up a legislative arm, and uh, I'm not sure, I'm not clear about the exact mechanics of how it happened, but that quickly became a, uh, a sort of a hotbed of activity for these. Uh, more libertarian-minded uh, people who were not the typical members that they had had before. And after a very brief period of time, roughly, I think only about a year, uh, the NRA decided that this was a bad idea, that these guys are sort of going rogue and, yeah. you know, and not fulfilling uh, the mission that they had envisioned. Mm -hmm. And so they dissolved it. And what happened after that was that that group of people uh -huh. uh, organized the coup, and they took over the organization in 1977. And it was, uh, you know, it, it was something that, uh, you know, I guess it, it, it was a common occurrence at the time that uh, liberal forces that existed had been in charge of uh, many things for a long time and were not particularly politicized in the sense of being uh -huh. strategically organized. They just had sort of broad principles uh, that they followed and had, you know, taken balanced approaches. As I said, they, you know, they favored most of what was in the, uh, uh, in Johnson's proposals and, uh, and opposed some. And uh, they came down getting almost everything they wanted uh, in the same kind of way uh, you know, other parts of the culture at the time were similarly situated. I mean, you had uh, mm. uh, the Republican Party as a whole supported uh, environmental legislation mm. in the 1970s. Uh, Nixon signed mm -hmm. uh, the act establishing, uh, you know, the, the Clean Air Act, the right. EPA, all, all, all that kind of stuff was considered, uh, you know, quite compatible, and it had a liberal background, but it was one that uh, 
was accepted across the board, and people were not, not prepared for something right. coming sort of out of right field. Uh, and, of course, uh, that, that changed quickly uh, in some places and more slowly in others. One of the places that happened quickly was the NRA, and that became a seed for other things to happen later on. And and one can certainly understand where they come where they came from, given your description of you know after the uh, the war against secession, and there was a proliferation of guns certainly afterwards. So many of the people I don't know about the north, but on the south certainly took home their own guns. Oh yes, <laughs> and and to keep it, you know, a sportsman's group has an an investment in keeping a good public image, and you know to to keep. Uh, to be responsible. In fact, I believe most gun owners today are responsible and want safe storage, and and you know, and not against gun safety. But as you mentioned, when well, they- yeah, that that's actually there's good data to support that because um, there's been um, a number of polls uh, showing that NRA owners, in particular, as well as gun owners in general support a broad range of gun safety proposals. Sure they do. And, uh, and also, of course, we have data showing that uh, um, the vast increase in gun ownership over the past 20 years or so has gone into a very small uh, group of hands. So you have this hardcore of uh, you know gun fanatics that may own 10, 20 guns yeah. apiece yeah. or more. Oh, yeah. And uh, the vast majority of gun owners only own one, maybe two, in a family. Yeah. And, fa- and so there's a real, you know, there's a real divide within uh, the gun-owning community. The, the fanatics mm-hmm. do not represent the views of the vast majority, and it's um, a fanatical uh, insistence that any uh, regulation right. is going to lead to confiscation that they use to try and drum up fears and keep everybody together. But in fact, there's no one that's that's calling for that. No, um, that's why uh, increasingly in the last uh, several years, uh, you have more and more people uh, stepping forward, identifying as gun owners for gun control. I mean, yes. you have, you know, Gabby Giffords and her husband right. are, 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 you know, examples of that. They're both gun owners, and they're strong gun control advocates. And, you you know, you're seeing more and more of that. But uh, even though they represent the, the vast majority of gun right. owners, they're still up against uh, the political power of the NRA and, you know, this entrenched uh, propaganda campaign that they've been you know, running for, oh, yeah. well, what is it now, uh, decades. 40 years. So. Yeah, something like And I wonder about, you know, is it, I mean, the gun manufacturers, you know, so many so many policies in general that come out of Washington uh, are lobbied for by manufacturers. I mean, the, the oh, weapons yes. system. Well, certainly, certainly. I mean, the manufacturers are obviously the ones who have the most benefit from yeah. Yeah, not so much the sportsmen who really want to be responsible, who are they have families themselves, quite frankly. You know, right? They, yeah, though you cannot <laughs> sell a lot of guns to someone who takes good care of the one they have. Oh, that is a good point. That is a very good point. And yet, I find you know many of the of the the more fanatics worship their guns, and and to them they define. I mean, freedom equals gun. 
there's just freedom doesn't mean anything else except owning a gun. So if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, fascinating discussion, I think, with Paul Rosenberg, a uh, California-based contributor at Salon, who also writes for Al Jazeera English, and a senior editor at Random Lengths News. We're talking about an article he wrote, When Evangelicals Were Pro-Choice, Yes, when evangelicals were pro-choice and the NRA was pro-gun control. There's the term fake news. Here we are in 2018. We're used to the term fake news. The roots of this term actually, I believe, go back to Mussolini, who called any news he didn't like fake news. But you write there is actually an evangelical root of fake news. And the actor who presented it to the big audience was none other than Jerry Falwell, that sounds fascinating. Please tell us about that. Well, Falwell was was an amplifier uh, of this view. That, as I said, it was sort of started by uh, Francis Schaeffer and, and C. Everett Koop. But uh, the idea that uh, secular humanism was this force that was uh, threatening the future of America. And uh, so he, he set up... Uh, this direct mail operation, and that became, you know, a very viable source of information for people. Before, uh, I mean, you need to recall, before talk radio, before Reagan was elected and had a chance to change the FCC, get rid of the fairness doctrine, there was no right-wing radio at the time. Direct mail... Uh, that Falwell was the pioneer of using in a political way was a real precursor, and you know the first real alternative to uh, the mainstream media as a source of political information on an ongoing basis, and that's really where uh, you know where this really got started, and uh, you had a culture then behind it, or, or an amplifying culture, I would say, of uh, uh, basically uh, anti-intellectualism. Yeah. Of, uh, um, and this has roots that go back to uh, you know, the founding of fundamentalism in response to uh, the higher German criticism and the, the, uh, the development of evolutionary thought in the late uh, 19th century, um, and this is a part of what I was talking about earlier about their withdrawal from the public sphere. Uh, so part of what they did in that defensive crouch was sort of indoctrinate their children against, uh, uh, you know, the the teachings of intellectuals. Right. So there was that you know, background component that was already a part of evangelical culture. But at the same time, there were there were evangelical scholars. So you had people who were intellectual but uh you know in a you know in a limited scope. Right, right. But still not many of those were very fine intellectuals. They were very honest in their thinking. And, you know, that's why they, you know, said that uh, the Bible did not say that life began at conception. But you, but, but there was an anti-intellectualism in a broader sense, because some lines of thinking uh, were simply, uh, you know, no. ruled illegitimate right. and were treated with contempt. So that was a background that 
pre-existing background that existed and when you had Falwell come along and pour out this propaganda into that, that sort of, uh, you know, combined with other actors at the time, and Falwell was, you know, sort of the poster boy for the moral majority, but many other people were involved at the time. You had Focus on the Family, for example. Uh, You had many different, you know, actors getting in. You had the upsurge of televangelism in the 1980s, uh, through a lot of different channels. And so what this did was it created a culture in which uh, this uh, flood of propaganda demonizing abortion and demonizing liberals as being associated with it uh, was, was taken on faith. And people saw uh, higher education, uh, secular humanism, science, all as uh, antithetical threats. And, yeah. you know, the mainstream media was a part of it because the, the mainstream media would not report the news the way that they saw it. But that was something I really hated, that there were a diversity of views rather than just their view being presented as the truth. And so the concept that, that there was a value in having this viewpoint, a value in being open to other points of view, was something that they attacked directly. And that's what they were concerned with trying to discredit any other uh, source right. of authority. And that's really the you know where this all got started. And uh, you have a, sort of a flourishing community of ex-evangelicals, uh, especially in social, social media these days, which is doing a, an awful lot of discussion about that in their own personal experience, as well as digging into this history. But uh, So it has a lot of different dimensions to it. But the big lie about abortion is certainly, in terms of its scope and its reach and its importance in the broader uh politics uh, really central to this whole story. Yeah, it really is. It just glues everything together, and it's amazing to me how uh, it's progressed, seems like an odd word for it, regressed, whatever, from the 1980s when they were insisting that their point of view was the real one. Now (laughs) we have a president who, if he says something, doesn't matter if it's a complete total lie without any basis in reality, that is to be believed. Everything else is fake news. Fascinating genesis of this whole process. What do you mean by this observation that, quote, overturning Roe, in effect, but without saying so, would be another form of decades-old right-wing dishonesty? What do you mean by that? If you contrast the NRA with Planned Parenthood, NRA says that they're defending the Second Amendment. The Second Amendment actually does not say that you have an individual right to bear arms. It says that you have a right to bear arms in the context of uh, a well-regulated militia. In fact, it's generally regarded that uh, there's a right to bear arms, there's a right for individual uh, self-defense, not based on the Constitution, but simply in common law, that, you know, that, that people have, have had guns for a long time and that it, it makes sense to just treat them like anything else, like cars. You have a, 
a licensed system to make sure that they're used safely. Well, of course, we don't have that with guns <laughs> because we have this fanatical extreme position. But that extreme position was not supported in as a matter of constitutional law. It was ridiculed as a fraud by uh, former Supreme Court Chief Justice Warren Berger uh, as late as like 1989 or 90. Uh, so it's only very, very recent that this got uh, promoted to being a Second Amendment right. On the other hand, you have Planned Parenthood, and what they're about is a broad provision of health services, and the, and the position of reproductive rights within that is quite simply that it makes a material difference to a woman, whether she has the right to control her own body. I mean, that's the most basic form of freedom, is control over your own body. Yeah, you think. And so there's a fundamental logic to that. And the way that they've worked in those two realms is sort of a mirror image. In the realm of gun rights, they keep expanding them based on fantasies of what might happen in some right. unrealistic situation. So the uh, Stand Your Ground law was expanded uh, on this fantasy of uh, people not being able to protect themselves in their own home. And in fact, but there's always been, to some degree or another, a right to protect your own home. Sure. And that's well understood. But the Stand Your Ground laws go way beyond that to saying, well, you have a right to stand your ground, and you don't have to try and avoid confrontation, which completely reverses centuries of common law, which says that you have a duty to avoid killing someone, yeah. if possible. Yeah. But out in public, outside your own home, yeah. where you can easily retreat, and you have the, yes. uh, the ability to retreat right. rather than fight and kill someone, right. That's what you were supposed to do. But they used this fear to expand the right to, to make it universal anywhere you want to be. And this was you know, vigorously opposed by law enforcement sure. because they knew oh, it would make crossfire. for a lot more crime. Yeah. And uh, it would make things more dangerous for police. Absolutely. So that's the way they eroded that. And then on the flip side, for women's rights, they were not able to strike down Roe directly, and they may not be even now. But what they have done is they've made it very difficult for women to get abortions by chipping away at different things like access, by requiring abortions to be gotten at an earlier and earlier stage, by criminalizing late-term abortions. What they're using is fantasies on one side and disregard of facts on the other. <laughs> it's so true. It's so true, and it's worked so well. Who would have thought it? You know, they have all these righteous platitudes about right to life and abortion is, as murder, and you write that anti-abortion politics has long been a winner for Republicans. What is their actual intent, do you think? You know, they use these things. Uh, they, they use fear. I mean, fear can always be used, and I think one of the most important words of the 20th century phrases was, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, because fear can be and often is manipulated. And it's it's mm -hmm. so many bad things can happen when people manipulate fear. What do you think 
they really are about. You say there is nothing, in fact, that conservative justices are unwilling to overturn. Nothing that they are unwilling to overturn. They talk about legal precedent. They've already, I mean, Gorsuch has already, uh, you know, been a part of overturning many different legal precedents. I wonder if they would dare, for example, to overturn voting rights as set in law, settled in 1965, the voting rights law. Well, in essence, they already have. I mean, when the uh, Shelby County versus Holder decision, they basically gutted the enforcement mechanism of the Voting Rights Act. And since that happened, uh, we've had a wave of voter suppression legislation. It's become very contentious. There is more and more uh, going on. A recent case which allowed Ohio to purge uh, people from their voting rolls who hadn't voted in some time, uh, you know, and then that's been shown to be something that tends to impact Democrats more than Republicans. So they're rolling out more and more of these, and the, the question is really how big a bite, how quickly they're going to take from different things, how they go about it, not what they're going to do. Uh-huh. They're going to roll back things that protect the majority, and they're going to advance things that protect those who have power. Dark money spending groups actually stifles the kind of open debate that the First Amendment was designed to encourage. Yeah, they... It's always been the case. You know, Freedom has always meant something different for those with power versus those without. I mean, <laughs> That's for sure. uh, freedom was one of the great battle cries of the Revolutionary War, and a lot of the people who used that battle cry were slave owners. <laughs> and for them, they were very, very much uh, driven by the quest for freedom precisely because they were slave-owned the institution they had no problem with. That kind of dichotomy moves on today in every aspect of conservative jurisprudence. They are fine with advancing special rights for business owners, for Christians, for uh, gun owners, but for anyone that uh, really needs it, for anyone who's really disadvantaged in life, their philosophy is that uh, there's never enough money for a rich person, and there's always <laughs> too much money for a poor person. Oh, my goodness. Oh, so interesting stuff. And they're, they wouldn't say it, but they really want a tyranny, a tyrannical rule of a right-wing minority. We have to take that on somehow. Uh, it's it's very difficult to do, and I think we're starting to do that. Do you, what, what's your sense of uh, optimism, any optimism at all? I mean, it's been hard, and they, they have some real power. It's encouraging to see how energized people are. Yes. And the real challenge is to translate that into long-term institution yes. building, because yes. that is really the key to what the right wing has been able to do is they have built uh-huh, institutions. Right. They use those institutions in a lot of dishonest ways, yeah. and that's not what we should do at all. We shouldn't, shouldn't be mimicking their modes of operation at the level of how dishonest they are. Right. But in terms of uh, organizing people to 
focus on long-term action, to focus on developing coherent principles that motivate them and connect different people and different Mm -hmm. struggles together, that's important to do. You are seeing more and more of that being articulated by people who are organizing the new groups or older groups that are being re-energized, Democratic Socialists of America, for one. Uh, But the question is, what comes out of this immediate organizing that's happening right now? Will we be able to stop this Supreme Court nomination? That's a really heavy lift. But regardless of how that turns out, will we recognize the need for a much stronger, much more robust organization of forces that work together and that bring these issues to the fore at the ballot box when it matters. Common law evolves over the centuries. It changes over time. It reflects changes in understanding. And we are a common law country. And because we are a common law country, it's only natural that law should evolve because that's what law does. And this is another level at which the right is lying about the nature of the law. It's pretty clear that if that was what people were voting on when they voted for president, that yeah. we would not have Donald Trump. Well, they were they were successful in mobilizing a segment of the American people around that. Yeah. Everybody was not voting exactly. on that. Exactly. We need to change that. We need to make it so that people understand this is the most important issue there is. It will affect every other issue. And those issues are all interconnected. If we get that across to people, we can take back our country. These are all connected. So these are majoritarian positions. It's simply a matter of making people vividly aware of that when they go to the ballot box. All these things are connected. You know, even most Republicans are on these majority positions on a good number of them. Not every one, but, uh, you know, campaign finance reform, for example, it's a Republican majority in, in favor of that as well. And speaking of laws, we have gone over our allotted time here. It's been really interesting. We could talk a heck of a lot more. I hope we can talk again. It's about so much about the, the concept of freedom itself. Uh, Paul Rosenberg writes for Salon.com. Thank you so much. Very, very interesting conversation. Thanks for being with Thank us. Thank you. Freedom. What does it mean? Freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose Nothing, don't mean nothing, honey, if it ain't free And feeling good was easy, Lord, Bobby sang the blues You know, feeling good was good enough for me mm-hmm. Good enough for me and my Bobby McGee Freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose Nothing, that's all that Bobby left me Feeling good was easy, loud, Bobby sang the blues I said feeling good was good enough for me Mm -hmm. It's good enough for me and my Bobby McGee